straight talk about the issues you care about the most. It's LaVise Dinkleville, Empowerment for the Culture. Now, your hosts, Dr. Will LaVise and Dr. Eric Claville. Hey, I'm Will LaVise. He's Eric Claville. You're tuning into LaVise and Claville, where we give it to you straight the way it is from a black male's perspective. Because it's like that, and that's the way it is. And so today I'll show annual MLK Day. This is 2022. Where are we now? The National Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday honors the uh, civil rights icon as the leader who sacrificed himself for the movement, as well as all of the unsung heroes of the Southern Freedom Movement that was from the 1950s and 1960s. On LaVise and Claville, we actually launched our show symbolically on MLK Day in 2021. So each year we like to take this time to ask, where are we now? And to give you a hint of where are we now in terms of how far we progress as African-Americans, one of the things that could tell you about how complex that, that answer is is that we are actually right now uh, debating in Congress voting rights bill, the uh, new bill, the Freedom to Vote, uh, John R. Lewis Act, as well as the, um, is, is actually a combined bill, you know, with the Voting Rights Advancement Act that uh, Congress is uh, trying to get passed and Biden has promised was going to get passed. But actually right now it looks like it's at least stalled and it may actually even be dead. Right, Claville. So we're going to we're going to tackle that and a variety of other topics that kind of indicates, you know, where are we now as a, as a black community and how how well have we progressed? Yeah, you know, well, again, um, in reflecting back on two things, number one, mm-hmm. our launching of the and Claville uh, this time on last year. Mm-hmm. You know, we've had many great conversations uh, with each other, with our viewers, uh, really sharing and. And talking about some hard issues, but really look at looking at them from um, a factual standpoint, historical standpoint, economic, social interaction, exactly. and also implication of action or inaction, right? So where are we now? I look back at that, at the year that we had in a phenomenal year. Of course, it was pandemic year hmm. and the future of Louisa and Camille. So I'm really excited about what we have moving forward. Uh, both working with you, our producer, uh, Benjamin Bailey. And as I reflect upon where are we now, looking at the life of MLK, the work of MLK and many others, and also the legacy of MLK, given where we are <laughs> in current state, you know, it's, it's, it, it really takes me aback, you know, um, how there was so much promise, so much, you know, bloodshed, so much death, Right. So, so much sacrifice, you know, on our side, our ancestors' sides, and those that uh, worked and marched alongside with us. And for us to today to be talking about voting rights, hmm. uh, it's almost a slap in the face, uh, just to be very honest with you. Um, we know that, of course, historically, the 1965 Voting Rights Act was actually created in order to provide the protections to primarily African-Americans and others disenfranchised uh, that were subjected to Jim Crow era 
of laws and public policy and practices on the local level that prevented them from voting. So yeah. even though you could vote, according to the U.S. Constitution, uh, of course, passing with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment in that package uh, after the Civil, uh, Civil War, to effectuate your right to vote was very hard. In other words, uh, you had to pay poll tax. You had to do a literacy test, sometimes grandfather clause. Guess how many jelly beans in a jelly jar? Right. Uh, and then also sometimes even death. Keep in mind, Megar Evers, Megar Evers, out of Mississippi, former uh, head of the NAACP, was actually shot and killed going into his house, shot in the back of the head because he dared to register people to vote. That's it. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, another way even looking at that act is that that's where African-Americans actually gain full citizenship in the United States. Because if you don't have the the right to vote secured, can you really say that you have full citizenship? That's a good point, Will, because, you know, as John Lewis stated, and we're going to talk about the John, as you mentioned, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act, um, it is the most powerful nonviolent weapon we have mm-hmm. in our democracy. As a matter of fact, it's the most powerful non-weapon, not, it's the most powerful uh, nonviolent weapon that anyone has across the world. That's right. why we work so hard to keep our elections uh, free and fair, which they are. They are. <laughs> you know, we're not going to get into that rhetoric uh, or, yeah. or that some are spewing, that, that vow rhetoric, uh, those lies that say that it's not because they are. Uh, even based upon their own chosen recounts, <laughs> they are. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know, but that's why we fight so hard across the world to say, let the people have a voice. Because many times, I mean, you know, you and I, you, you've reported, you know, I've worked in various halls of government, uh, and we know the average citizen can't access, unfortunately, uh, like uh, the very few can access, you know, but your voice, your voice right. to be heard is your vote. Right. So, so that, was one, that was one of the biggest achievements of the civil rights era, of the Southern um, freedom movement, you know, yeah. led by King. And so, like you said, to go from that act to here we are in 2022, still questioning whether we should have voting rights or it needs to be protected is, you know, that's like you said, a slap on the face. It's, it's just quite an irony to when you start to assess, OK, where are we now? How much have we really progressed as a people? Yeah. You know, and I, I want our uh, viewers to understand that, yes, you can, you do have the right to vote. But the question becomes, how much protection do you have mm-hmm. around those various rights? Right. And how can your local uh, state government and local government effectuate barriers in order to access the ballot box? So if I could just give a, a, a quick lesson and an example of where we are. So yes, you do have the right to vote. However, the Supreme Court uh, ruled uh, that the preclearance portion of, well, the formula utilized for preclearance in 2009 in Shelby County, a Shelby County case versus Holder was outdated. So Hmm. basically it would have been outdated, then it nullified preclearance, which basically meant that if your local, if your state government makes any changes to voting districts, uh, the way you vote, IDs, and whatever the case may be, it first had to go through the Office of Civil Rights and the U.S. Department of Justice to be pre-clear to say it's okay, which mm. means that it falls within the law, right? Right. Um, when that was eliminated, 
immediately <laughs> states went and created and enacted policies, laws from back back when, in order to disen- help to disenfranchise uh, black voters. Uh, matter of fact, in North Carolina, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals stated that the laws that were created by the state legislature were, quote, surgical precision to disenfranchise black voters. Hmm. You know, in one county uh, where North Carolina A&T is located in North Carolina, they took 15 polling places and put it down to one, right? right. So what does that do? It eliminates access to the ballot box. Uh, of course, we have states like Florida, states like Texas, uh, and Georgia, they were all also done the same thing. But when you take a look what happened in 2020, 2019, 2020, more specifically, state legislators such as Virginia and Georgia, Virginia signed the Voting Rights Act uh, here on the statewide level, which is the first in the South to do so, under former Governor Ralph Northam. And what that did, that helped to protect local elections from these types of disenfranchising mechanisms, these policies. So what in Virginia, what we did is that we created access, more access to the ballot box and more protections. Hmm. In Georgia, they did the exact opposite, right? They made it illegal to give somebody a bottle of water standing in line or give them a chair in order Hmm. to sit there. Now, why would someone do that, right? Why could you be penalized and possibly prosecuted for giving somebody a bottle of water? But what they have done, they've enacted policies in their state legislature to decrease access to the ballot box. So we see this fight across the board through the traditional South and other states that are looking to disenfranchise Black voters and voters from, quote unquote, uh, non-Republican uh, districts or what are called minority districts so that they can, their voices cannot be heard to the maximum that they normally would have been with those protections. Right. So I think the important thing, the point that you're bringing forth is that access is really the key. You could have legally on paper, it could say you have the right to do X, Y, and Z. But if at the local level where the rubber really meets the road, Absolutely. if you have all of these stumbling blocks in front of you to be able to execute your right to do X, Y, and Z, then you have to question, you have to say at the end of the day, that you really don't have that right. If you don't have access to it, then you can't claim it. And this is one of the things that also you see playing out in other areas. So here in voting, you see it playing out in terms of wealth, in terms of jobs. And so when you try to look at how well is the Black community doing now compared to back in the 1960s or so, it could be a little difficult because the data wasn't always kept in a lot of the data that has been kept looking at this is, is it only goes back to like 75 or so. But as you look at certain areas like wealth, like access to housing, which was another point of the civil rights movement and Southern freedom movement. I think that's very important for people to understand that it was really about access. A lot of times people reflect back on that period and they think were black people fighting so that they could be among white people or so that they could have and sit in schools next to white people. No, it wasn't really about culture and not feeling a sense of pride of being black and so forth. It was about 
access, if you don't have equal access to things in the community that can lead to upward mobility, then right. you're going to have inequality. And that's why one of the reasons why Supreme Court, Brown versus Board of Education, identified that separate but equal is inherently unequal. Because if you can't in society have separation, you can't instinctively, you, you can't have equal access. Then what was the point of the separation? The point of the separation is to put stumbling blocks in place to limit access. And that's a lot of what we still find ourselves fighting today. So as you start looking at some of the other areas, like I mentioned, wealth, you talk about access to jobs, talk about access to capital. So I pull, like under wealth, I pull one some stats that showed that, for example, back in 1968, uh, data shows that the average typical black family, their level of wealth was $2,467. And now today, but, but yeah, but think about it. And you will say, people will say, okay, well, the dollar was different in 1968 or so, but still $2,467. And that was still, you know, six, six times less than what, uh, white Americans had, which is essentially the same ratio that we have now. So around now, the average wealth, black family, believe it or not, $17,409. So I don't care what you're seeing on TV about folks uh, living living it up in Atlanta or living in LA. When you take the average of all African, when you average Oprah and Michael, Michael Jordan and Shaq and and, you know, Ken Chenault, keep going, and Jay-Z, and you start averaging them out with the majority, overwhelming majority of the masses of Black people in this country, you're going to come to an average wealth of somewhere around $17,000. I mean, with, and, and that is, white wealth is six times, you know, six times more than that. Yeah. Well, Access. You know, you know, you know, well, one thing that we we say, of course, in business, numbers don't lie, right? Mm-hmm. It's only how you interpret the numbers and analyze the numbers, which creates the narrative. But numbers don't lie. Those are the numbers. And, you know, it's when you talk about building wealth and having access, that's that's really the key. That's what mm-hmm. America is about, right? Mm-hmm. People come to America for freedoms. And part of those freedoms is economic freedom. Part of those freedoms are education. Part of those freedoms are to be able to live your life without uh, having a dictatorship uh, dictate dictate what you do and what you don't do. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you have when you don't have economic freedom, access to wealth, access to loans, access to capital, which is really what it's all about. You know, being able to leverage. So, you know, wealth is built based on how much you can leverage, as opposed to, you know, being born with a silver spoon. I mean, you start to be able to uh, do some things that you really want to do, invest, and, right. and the like. You know, so, you know, when you mention having access, and, and we're talking about MLK, where are we now? Where have we gone? <laughs> I mean, we went from 2,000 to, to, let's just round it up to say 18,000. Hmm. I mean, you know, that's, from, from, from you look at the dollar, inflation and so forth, that's about the same. 
It's about the same. Yeah. You know, so how far can $18,000 take you? Let's just say you lose your job. How far can that really take you? Right. You, it, it, it doesn't give you the ability to really save for six, three to six months. If, like you said, if you lose your job, to be able to have that cushion. Well, they say, they say you need six to nine months, right? And then after the pandemic, you need 12 months. Right. So... So you, you're really living, the majority of African-Americans are really living in an existence where one mistake, one loss of job, one loss of, you know, income could really lead to a tragedy. So, so for example, just, just giving a clear numbers, 17,000 in 2000, I believe this was around last data, somewhere around 2000. 16 and 16 to 2019 or so, $17,409 average wealth, African Americans, 171,000 average wealth, white Americans. So, when you talk about access, and you said an important word earlier, leverage. So, what does a lot of, a lot of African Americans, a lot of people in this country, period, are they able to leverage in terms of building wealth? Well, home ownership. Right. So one of the things that the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King and I actually learned his brother, um, A.D. King, who was working behind the scenes, you know, one of his pushes after the assassination of his brother was fair housing, equal opportunity, equal access to housing, which was another achievement that happened under um, uh, LBJ. As, a, as president. And so now when you start to look forward, you start talking about, okay, access to housing, meaning uh, an American citizen should have the right to live anywhere that they can afford to live. They shouldn't have to be relegated to a particular area of a city, redline to a particular section where now if you're redline in this area, you can cut off the access to resources to build up that area, you can cut off the access to banks for ownership. No, an American citizen should be able to live anywhere that they can afford or that they want to live. So now you look at what is happening with home ownership and access. And a lot of those, uh, you know, a lot of those numbers, when you look at black home ownership, is not looking good at this point. Yeah. And, you know, the pandemic did, did not help any either. Exactly. You know, so when you talk about that, we, where are we now? A lot more people are having to rent and rents are going up. As a matter of fact, I was watching one of my, one of my favorite uh, shows I, I like to watch is on, on Bloomberg. And we, they take a look at investors and where they are, how their lives led mm-hmm. to what they're doing now. And one of the individuals that I was looking at, you know, one that they were um, displaying on the show, talked about how we're in the early innings now of companies investing in single family homes because what the data shows is that we can raise rents, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and rents are going up 18%, 13, 18% in some uh, localities. So when we talk about protection, you know, on one side, there's one part of, uh, of the outlet that, that gives a rhetoric of, you know, eliminate regulations. Right. Right. But I call it protectionism. And one thing that we need in America for African-Americans and people of color are protectionisms. And that's to protect us from the historical 
uh, discriminatory and deadly practices that keeps us from accessing the American dream. And the other reason is to provide protections so that we can access, hmm. you know, the American dream. And when we run into tough times, be able to continue to stay in our homes, be able to continue to move and leverage uh, our gains from one opportunity to another. It happens for large corporations, right? It happens for individuals who have historically had the opportunity um, in America. So again, where are we now? We're, well, you know, as it relates to voting rights, as it relates to economics and access, it looks like we're in the same position we were maybe 50 years ago. Hmm. You know, and I don't want to distort the gains. I don't want that statement to distort the gains that we made as African Americans or black people or people of color. I don't I don't want to distort it. We made tremendous gains. Um, of course, we've got our first black president, first black family in the White House. We've got our first uh, black woman of color, uh, vice president, you know, HBCU graduate. I mean, we've had all of our firsts in a lot of places and behind the scenes. Because we, you and I understand that the person in the front has the ability to bring those about four, uh, you know, hundreds if not thousands of others behind them in positions, right? So if they choose to do so, right? <laughs> that, that's another show, Will. You know, you know, did you take advantage? Well, question is, you got the power. Did you use it? Right. right? So, but, you're, but you're right. There has there have been many gains, and so for example, an example of gains is like in the, actually in the area of poverty. So it's not all dire. So in 2019, the poverty rate 18.8 percent, or basically 19 percent, which is actually half of what the poverty rate was around 1966. So in 1966, you had 10 percent of white folks. Uh, live uh, below the poverty level, and 34% of African Americans did. So when you look at from the 1960s to now, poverty has been halved in the black community. You know, so again, that's that's something that's that's very important. That a lot of time, and 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 another thing to look at that is I often hear people talk about the black community may have been better off during segregation because we had more Black-owned businesses. We had more um, a sense of a community, right? And, for example, there were less, there were fewer um, single-parent households, which is true because you had a stronger marriage. And the reason why I mentioned single-parent households, primarily led by women, is not because of some paternalistic mindset, but because there's a direct correlation between poverty, women and children are the majority people who are in poverty. So when you have so many single parent households led by mothers, it increases the likelihood that there's going to be poverty there because that's across the board. So, but it's important to understand that during that time of segregation, the poverty level, you're talking about 30, you're talking about north of 30% of African-Americans. Yes. So that's a lot. So if you want to, if you want to be nostalgic about, you know, those times and how things were better, because you often hear that said, ironically, by people who didn't actually live it. You know, the folks, you know, the elders that we talk to, you know, will tell you 
that no, you out of your mind, that during segregation that that was somehow better. Poverty was much higher. And again, it's about access. So King and all the leaders, the other soldiers of the, the Southern Freedom Movement, Civil Rights Movement, they were fighting for access because they realized that greater access to all of what the country has to offer that African-Americans certainly through, through in being from being enslaved on up to the present time built, this would improve our life as a people. And in the area of poverty, you definitely do see that, even though we still see poverty in our communities and it's still, you know, it's still, it's still disturbing. It is, it is. And well, you make a good point because, you know, things were better from that perspective, but it's the policies that were created to give the majority, if not all, African Americans the opportunity mm-hmm. for gains within employment, education, housing, voting, and the like. It wasn't until really the 80s where you started to see a lot of those policies take effect to roll back the gains mm-hmm. that were made. And we have what we have today. And of course, the um, influx of drugs and illegal guns into our community. You know, which, you know, we've talked about and others have written about how that actually happened, right? So, you know, where are we now? You know, we are in a better place than we were, but we are seeing those places roll back and many, those gains roll back in many areas Mm -hmm. of the African-American community and also the African-American experience. And when we talk about community, Will, you know, it's... Those of us, you and I, we both have doctor degrees, we're both professionals. I've, you know, we've experienced, been places, done things, had, you know, opportunities, jobs, and so resources and so forth. Right. Uh, maybe we had a downtime, but we were able to bounce back. You know, many people can't, right. can't do that. Right. So, you know, that's, you know, we've been the beneficiaries of that, you know, uh, being able to see the games. We are an example. We are the embodiment of those gains. Our children will be the embodiment of those gains as well. But for the larger group, that's not the case. Right. You know, one mistake can cost them, as you stated before, cost them everything. One bad move, one bad investment, one bad decision, and they don't get the second chance of opportunity. <laughs> one so, bad marriage. <laughs> that you can't that you can't recover from. Yeah, I mean. One loss of job, I mean, can send you into a tailspin, you know, you, you know, you were talking about advantages and beneficiaries and you're exactly right because another one of the gains improvements has been college education. So around 1962, only 4% of African-Americans college educated. Now you fast forward 2019, 2020, you know, in the current era, 26% 26% African Americans educated. I mean, that's a significant change. Yeah, but 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 we'll think about it. Now again, like everything is a plus and everything is negative, right? So yes, you're able to get multiple degrees, but individuals are saddled with large amounts of debt getting those right. degrees. And then the policies in the job market says, well, you had a degree, but you don't have the experience. Go back and get the experience. But you mm-hmm. can't get the experience unless you had a degree to get the job in order to get, get the opportunity for that particular job. So now you're stuck in a, in a position that you're overly qualified for, not making as much money as the degree said you could, 
Right. And now you're kind of going in a tailspin. So, you know, others may say, hey, do it, do it uh, in a more smart way by seeking out scholarships and opportunity. But sometimes it's not the, you just don't have that ability. So, you know, we can talk about the student loan trap, the education trap, uh, the promise of the job trap, right? That a lot of persons have found themselves in. Uh, which right now, you know, we'll do another sh- segment on student loans, <laughs> student loan repayment, and where our student loan forgiveness, where, where is that at? Right. Because I think that's also part of this legacy as well. So I think, I think in, in closing, I think we got to look at the positives and the negatives and be very honest with ourselves as a society, be very honest with ourselves as a people, and very honest with ourselves as a government and say, listen, are we doing everything we can do to effectuate the sacrifice that Dr. King and many, many, many others with him and those that were not with him, the mega Evers of the world, the uh, uh, Fannie Lou Hamers of the world, many others that trailblazed and sacrificed. Some gave the greatest sacrifice. Right. Are we doing everything that we can to effectuate their their sacrifice into common sense, good policy to help and to not harm. Yeah, so I would agree with you. I mean, there have definitely been gains. There's definitely still quite a ways to go. And I think that it would behoove us, the leaders in our community, individuals to be able to really look at the areas where we need to grow and we really need to develop. And then it's ironic that when King was taken off the scene, when he was assassinated, he was in the midst of forming a poor people's march. And he was looking at um, the issue of jobs again and access and building wealth because he recognized that and, and others in the movement recognized that legislation could only make but so much change. It didn't in terms of increasing access. And so that was the next phase. That was the next stage that they were going into is looking at wealth and income inequality. Many of the issues that we are hearing as being discussed right now. So these are the things that we really need to be uh, tackling and really taking up the mantle that King had had taken up himself uh, before he was taken from us. Exactly right. So 2022, where are we now? here on MLK Day, really celebrating and recognizing his life, his legacy, mm-hmm. and ensuring that we are li- the living example, but also our lives and the things that we do help those that are coming behind us. Thank you again for joining us for this segment of Maurice and Cavill. Continue to watch us, like us, and also subscribe and catch every single episode. Because to us, that's the way it is. Be well. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to another episode of La Viste en Claville. Make sure you subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. For information or to connect with La Viste en Claville, check out our website at www.lavisteclaville.com. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to At the La Viste en Claville on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. This has been the latest episode of La Viste en Claville.